You just listen to Matthew 1, 18 to 25, and that passage tells us something pretty profound. And it talks about an angel speaking to a man in a dream and telling him that his engaged wife, who's pregnant, that the baby inside of this woman is of God. Think about how Joseph would have struggled to process that information if it was, it was you. Then Matthew goes on to quote that prophecy from Isaiah 7.14 that this child indeed was God himself, a fulfillment of that prophecy, and he was given the title Emmanuel, God with us. It's quite an encounter, <laughs> and one of the things that you notice if you're familiar with the Advent Christmas accounts in the Gospels is how often uh, the angels are used by God to communicate what is happening in the birth of Christ. Now, next week when Pastor Bill comes, he's going to spend uh, his time in the Gospel of John and give several sermons on this phrase, God with us. That's what we're going to zoom in on in, in our Advent season right up through Christmas. And what I'd like to do this morning is just share some thoughts with you about God with us as kind of a broad picture, almost like a, I don't know, the, word, the illustration I wanted to use is a buffet, but it's really not going to be <laughs> a lot of food. It's more hors d'oeuvres. But I want to give you a lot of implications of the phrase God with us to get you to start thinking about it. And perhaps just like at a buffet, as you go and pick and choose, uh, there may be something that you like that God is speaking to you in, and you'll spend some time thinking about that in these next few weeks. So we know from the book of Genesis, let's just go back to the book of beginnings, that God created us in His image, and God created us to have relationship with Him. And how do we know that? Because by being made in His image, we have the capacity, unlike any other creature, to have a relationship with God. It's built into us. It's built into our uh, heart and our mind and our spirit. And one of the things, if you're familiar with the book of Genesis in chapter 1 and 2, that God shows that He wanted to have relationship with Adam and Eve by providing and protecting and taking care of them. You see that all through the first few chapters. And one of our deepest needs as people, we may not be aware of it, but it is our deepest need, is to know that God is with us and that we're not alone. Because it can be very fearful in this life if you think you're all alone. Some of you know this quote, but it's worth repeating. It's from the French philosopher Pascal who said that we have a God-shaped vacuum in our hearts and that there's nothing that can ultimately fill it except God Himself. So all the cravings, all the longings that we try to fill from other things, that restlessness is found 
comes from our longing to be with God. We may not be in touch with it, but that's how we're built. We can go back through the Scriptures and look at many leaders, great leaders, who asked God for reassurance in their life that He was with them. Moses is my favorite. He's a great leader. And you, you know the story of Moses, but in Exodus 3 and 4, and then later in Exodus 33, he's begging God, I'm not going to do this unless I know that you're with me. I can't do this on my own. And God reassures him again and again, I will be with you. The need to have God with us is very obvious in the life of Moses. When he dies and uh, is out of the picture, the next person that comes along is Joshua. And in Joshua chapter 1, if you read it over and over again, you're seeing that first nine verses, God gives specific assurance to Joshua that just as I was with Moses, I will be with you. The need to know that God is with us was deep in Joshua. He couldn't lead the people into the promised land unless he knew that God was with them. If you're familiar with the Psalms at all, repeatedly by David, he cries out for the presence of God. He can't go forward. He can't do what God has called him to do unless God is with him. And that's what the beauty all is of Advent. The beauty of Advent is that God proves that he wants to be with us in the sending of Jesus Christ, the God-man. It's a just a beautiful evidence that God wants to be with us as much as we want to be with Him. So what I want to do is just kind of bump over a bunch of implications of this for you to ponder uh, in the next few weeks. And it's, uh, I think the things that I say I think will be helpful, hopefully, and they're things that I have wrestled with in the last few weeks, knowing that I would preach this morning. So when we think of God with us, that phrase, first of all, it's a truth that makes our Christian faith unique and exclusive. If you think about all the other religious leaders in the world, Buddha never said he was God, Mohammed never said he was God, Confucius never said he was God, the only one who says he is God is Jesus Christ. And this is what makes the Christian faith unique. No other major religion talks about God coming into the world and becoming like us as a human being, taking on our flesh and everything that makes us human. That is unique to the Christian faith. And Jesus took on a body, as you know, a mind and a soul, and He was like us in His earthly life. And both in Jesus' direct phrases and indirect uh, implications, he would say over and over again, I am God. He said, before Abraham was, I am. He said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. He said, I and the Father are one. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. He said that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins. All that is God talk that he was God. And in our passage, Matthew says by inspiration of the Scripture that this baby 
inside of Mary was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And only the Christian faith declares that this person, Jesus Christ, is both fully God and fully man. Charles Spurgeon, the great English preacher, who many of you have his works, I love to read them, he said this about this phrase, God with us, and how unique it is in the Christian faith. He said, Jesus is infinite, but he's also an infant. He said, Jesus is eternal, yet he's born of a woman. He said, Jesus is almighty God, and yet he's nursing at his mother's breast. Jesus is the one who holds the universe together, and yet he needs to be carried by his mother in her arms. He is the heir of all things, heaven and earth, and yet he's the carpenter's despised son. You get the idea of the uniqueness here of the Christian faith. Our Christian faith is the only one that says that Jesus Christ is God and he is fully man. Second implication of this truth that God is with us is that this truth is a mystery. It's a mystery. And a mystery is something that is hard to understand. And when you begin to think about how this works out, it is hard to understand. And there's several mysteries in our faith. That doesn't mean they're not true. It just means that it's above our pay grade. We can't fully, fully get it. And the more we think about it, the harder it is. You get like a knot in your brain or a cramp in your brain. One of them is the Trinity. Think about that for a while. God in three persons. Each one is fully God, but distinct in three persons. Here's another one. God is absolutely sovereign. He controls everything in heaven and earth, every little thing from the hair of our head to the greatest thing in heaven and on earth. He controls it all. He predestined all. But on the other side, He holds man ultimately responsible for His life. Try to put those two together. Another one is the origin of evil. Think about that. Where did evil come from? These are mysteries. And the other mystery is that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. They're hard for us to understand, but they're clearly taught in the Scripture. And this should humble us to realize that there are just some things that we will not fully understand until we get to heaven. So how does it work? How can we fully understand that in one person there's two natures, divine and human? How do they work together? How are they balanced in the person of Christ? Does one nature dominate the other? Is Jesus more human during the week and then on the weekend he's divine? Is Jesus more human in the morning and he's divine at night? And I'm not being facetious here, but I've tried to figure this out. Like, how do they work? How, do they, how does it work? And I, I can't understand it fully. But yet we see in the Bible, especially in the Gospels, the two natures of Jesus Christ fully balanced in his life. He shows no signs in the Gospel of a man who has a mental imbalance or a personality disorder. He's not like the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde personality of that great book by Robert Louis Stevenson. But what do we see? We see a man who's weak as a human. He gets tired. He gets hungry. He gets thirsty. He has emotions. He has temptations. He gets frustrated. He depends on his father. 
But then on the other hand, we see a man who's more than a man, and he's divine. He preaches and teaches with authority. He forgives sins. He claims to be one with God. He performs miracles. He walks on water. He casts out demons. He heals people. He raises people from the dead. He feeds 5,000, and he raises himself from the dead. Again, it's, you see the mystery? It's a mystery. It's, it's hard for us to fully grasp, but it's taught in the Scripture. A third implication of this phrase, God with us, is that this should comfort us. Comfort us. And this is what makes Christianity unique in, in one of the most beautiful ways. In becoming human, as Jesus became human, He knows your condition and your struggles because He was just like you. He was a man who was tempted in all ways, yet without sin. I love this passage of Scripture in Ephesians 4. It's one of my favorites. I cling to it all the time when I'm struggling. And it says, Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to what we believe. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who is in every respect has been tempted like we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us come with confidence to draw near to the throne of grace so that we might find mercy and help in time of need. Jesus Christ was fully man. He lived among people. He was witnessed. He was touched. He was seen. He had relationship with people. He walked. He talked. He was hungry. He was thirsty. He got tired. He got frustrated. He needed water. He needed a bath. He needed to go to the bathroom, just like you and me. Do you understand? And so he understands the struggle that we go through. He can show real empathy and real sympathy because he's like us. And so no matter what we're going through in life, we have someone who understands the human struggle. We don't have a God who's way out there or somewhere else or distant deity who doesn't know, who doesn't care, who doesn't understand. Jesus Christ was fully human, and He proved it by becoming a man, dwelling among us, and living a life that we did. The fourth implication, God with us was necessary it was necessary for, for this to be true in order to solve our human problem, which is sin. Our greatest problem as people is not that we don't have enough money or we live in the wrong place or we don't have all the talents as somebody else. It's our deepest problem is we're sinners. We have a bad heart. We have a bad record. And due to our sin nature, we fall short of the glory of God and stand under the judgment of God. But because God the Son came like us, He entered our nature and became a Savior, and He sought and out the lost. He came to give His life a ransom for many. He came to forgive sins and to reconcile us with God and give us eternal life. He came to be our covenant keeper and our curse bearer. And so when we come to Him in repentance and faith, we're forgiven, we're accepted, we're loved, and He gives us eternal life. He gives us everything that we need, and that's called the righteousness of Christ. 
and he did it. And if he didn't come <laughs> as a human being and do all this, we would have no hope. And now he reigns and rules, and he's our high priest, and he represents us continually before the Father. And so we continue to have grace and mercy in, in time of need. And if you're worried about whether you're going to make it, Jesus is praying for you over and over again. He continually brings his own before the throne. And all of this is satisfactory to God. None of this would be true unless he did not become like us and become the God-man. Fifth implication, that God is with, with us is a truth that helps us know what God is like. God, how does God reveal Himself to us? Through creation, sunrise, sunset, mountains, oceans, the complexity and beauty of people, of flowers, of creation. They all show the glory of God, but they don't give us enough information. So God reveals Himself through the Word. He gives us the Bible so we can figure out who He is and what He's like and His plan of redemption. But the third way He reveals Himself is through the person of Jesus Christ. What did Jesus say? If you've seen, if you see me, <laughs> you see the Father. I and the Father are one. I am the exact representation of God. Listen to what Hebrews says earlier in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. He says, long ago, at many times and in many places, God has spoken to the fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He speaks to us by the Son, whom He appointed as heir of all things, through whom He has created the world. If we want to know God fully, we certainly need His creation, we need His Word, but we need Him because He is the one who shows us what God is like because He's God Himself. He reveals to us who God is. And that's why He came, <laughs> to show us what God is like. So when you observe Jesus and how He deals with people and relates to people, He's showing you how God relates to people. If you want to know what pleases God and displeases Him, you look at the life and the person of Jesus Christ. Last, a sixth implication, it's a truth that is hopeful and beautiful. God created us in His image, and that's one of the wonderful things that makes us unique in His creation. And we have dignity, we have power, we have ingenuity, we have creativity because we are like God. When you think, and if you would just stop sometime and think of all the things that humanity has done in all these years, it's just amazing. The advancement in medicine. I would not be standing up here before you today if somebody, a doctor from um, uh, Dartmouth Medical Center, figured out a, a surgery called a corpectomy. And I had a corpectomy in 1990, and that was because my spinal cord had collapsed. And he took a bone from my hip and put it in my neck and he was the one who figured how to do this. Before that, if that happened to people, they would just let you go. You'd sit in a chair, and eventually you'd become a quadriplegic. That happened to me. That's an advancement of medicine that is just wonderful. And I can talk about that all day. 
But you think about all the other things of food production, healthcare, space travel, technology, robotics. My son-in-law is a surgeon and he, sur he does surgery through a robot. And you say, well, this is not real. Yes, it is. He sits in another room with a joystick and a huge flat screen TV and a robot's, robot sits over the person and puts the probes through the veins and that's how they do the surgery. Artificial intelligence. <laughs> Maybe scary stuff, but it's real. How does all this happen? It's through the creativity, beauty, ingenuity, engineering of humanity. We are the crown of, of creation. We are the crown of creation. That's what Psalm 8 tells us. But in spite, see, of all these wonderful advancements, we do terrible things to one another and to God's creation and to God Himself. We are selfish. We are self-centered. We defy God's created order of male and female. We create our own identities. We demand to kill the unborn because we don't want it. An unborn that is created in the image of God. We are rebellious to God's revealed morality and we, we create our own. We are abusive to ourselves and to other people. We pollute God's creation. We're addicted to drugs, alcohol, and sex. We're prejudiced. We're racist. We're hateful. We hold people as sex slaves and trade them for money. We're warriors. We're dominators. We uh, are malicious, deceptive, depraved. We do misinformation. So here you have man in his glory and man in his depravity. And, it's, and it, that's the way it is. And it's painful to see. But see, in the person of Jesus, we see something else. We see something of what humanity will be when the, we get the new heavens and the new earth and we finally get out of all this yuck. We see a man who is what? Unconditionally loving. He's caring. He's wise. He's patient. He's kind to both the good and the evil. We see what we can be in the person of Jesus Christ. And we also see the hope of humanity. Our bodies and our minds due to sin and the fall begin to deteriorate at 25. That's what the scientists tell us. So <laughs> I've been on the downside for a long time. And over the years, what happens? We become frail. We become old. We lose our hair. We get disease. We suffer with aches and pains. We lose our eyesight. We lose our hearing. And everything starts to break down. But because Jesus became like us, He suffered and overcame sin and Satan, rose from the dead in a glorified body, that's what's going to happen to us later. We are going to get that glorified body. We're going to go to a place where the new heavens and the new earth are, and there'll be no more tears, sin, struggle, death, because Jesus accomplished redemption. And we will get that body that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15, where no more aches or pains, no more neck surgeries, no more glasses. Whatever it's going to be, it's going to be beautiful. That's the hope, you see. And none of this would happen unless Jesus Christ became human. And finally, while we wait for a second coming, because as Sharon said, the word Advent means coming. 
And that was his first coming. But just as we know for sure he came the first time, he's coming again. And he's coming soon. And when he comes, all that we hope for will be realized in him. But in the meantime, he proves that he wants to be with us because he gave us the Holy Spirit to be inside of us. God has given us a real-life experience that he's in us in the indwelling person of the Holy Spirit. The Bible in the Old Testament said that the, the temple was a place, the tabernacle was a place where God dwelt. But in the New Covenant, God dwells in the heart of his people. It's just amazing to think about that God dwells inside of you and me if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. And where you go, he goes. And he'll never leave you and he'll never forsake you because he's in you. And that down payment of the Holy Spirit is the evidence, see, that God wants to be with us. Listen to this passage. I just love this. 2 Corinthians 6, 16, it says, what agreement does the temple of God, and that's us. He's not talking about a building here. He's talking about the people of God. He says, what agreement does the temple of God have with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will make my dwelling with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst, be separate, separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will welcome you. I will be your father. You will be my sons and daughter, says the Lord Almighty. See, the evidence, the giving of the Spirit is, is the proof that God wants to be with us because he has given us his Spirit to be within us. I've given you seven things to think about today. Just touched on them. I didn't go into a lot of depth, but often it at Christmas, it's so familiar. The Advent season is so familiar. And there's so much emphasis in our culture on Santa and angels and lights and parties. But the real meaning is God with us. God with us. Think about these things. Ponder them. Because God wants to show you the majesty and the beauty of what God with us is all about.